Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything related to the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Kelly. I am a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter and apparently now a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within, arguably, the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free each and every week on scottcowie.com, on Stitcher Radio, and now on iTunes. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, let them know what's going on over here. But for now, enjoy the show. This week on the podcast, Kenny Jones, the last remaining small face. Drummer, of course, from the faces, small faces and the who. What a pleasure it was to chat to Kenny. Just phenomenal stories coming your way. And I've read a lot of his interviews. I've watched a lot of them on YouTube as well. And trust me, there's a good few exclusives on this interview. Just amazing. Great, great stuff. Thanks to all you guys the last couple of weeks. What a run we've had once again. We had Katie Tunstall on a couple of weeks back. Reaction to that podcast has been amazing. Um, She told some great stories. Go back and check it out. And of course, big shout out to Sammy Burrows, who put together a phenomenal animation of of that episode. Well, certainly a couple of stories from it. Um, You can go and check that out. That's available on scottcowie.com, as well as the final episode of the vodcast series. My friend Tanya O'Callaghan and I uh, recorded out there in Los Angeles. Um, Spoke to Carol Kay. Um, just amazing bass player, phenomenal career. Uh, Definity Rocks, Nathan East, Vivi Rama, a bunch of bass players chipped in in that episode uh, to give their thoughts on Carol, and she was really, really pleased with that. So keep it up the good work, all of you guys who've been tweeting and Facebooking your reactions to all of these podcasts and vodcasts and everything that we're putting out there. Uh, loved a lot of the, the Twitter reaction to the Katie Tunstall podcast and the animation. Just brilliant, reading through a lot of the tweets. Very, very humorous uh, interaction with with um, listeners who have just been quoting from it and coming up with funny little anecdotes. So a really entertaining podcast. And of course, the reaction to it from you guys has been brilliant. So love all that. Keep keep doing what you're doing. ScottCowie.com, of course. Subscribe on iTunes. You can... Um, a lot of people have been asking me actually about iTunes, about how they get it sorted. Now, there's a podcast app, okay? Um, it's a standard kind of iTunes podcast app. And what you do is once you download that, just search my name, Scott Cowie, and you subscribe to it and you get it from your phone or your tablet, your iPhone, iPad, whatever it may be. You get it every week. Uh, every Thursday, of course, we drop this podcast. So um, sort all that out. Check out the previous episodes. There's a bunch of great ones. Um, but for now, we're going to check out another Great bass player, a friend of mine. Before we get to that interview with Kenny Jones, I am joined now by the man who is asking me if he holds the record for the amount of times that he's been in this podcast. Gary John Kane, how are you, sir? Scott, great to be back on the show. I think that's my 400th time. Yes, so, um, and look forward to another 400. <laughs> I think that's my third time. So three's all right. It's a trilogy. <laughs> which is always the downfall so hopefully we can we can destroy the myth that the trilogy is always the worst the third episode so three. <laughs> <laughs> right we're just talking about you're just back from a rehearsal today with the proclaimers um, a mad year um coming up for you guys mm-hmm. as we speak on this podcast uh, in a few days time you guys are going to be playing a lanark and you've got Perth Concert Hall, you've got all the big festivals. How's it all going? How's the rehearsal so far? Uh, quick roundup. We did an album before Christmas called um, Let's Hear It for the Dogs. And uh, 
Dave Arenga produced it, who was um, just finished or just recorded the Michael Johnson Roger Dolce album that was out last year, um, and he's always done the Manic Street Pictures right through. So he gave us a wee hard edge. So now we've been rehearsals for the whole tour, and as you say, it starts with Sunny Kelso, Lanark, and Perth, but that's like warm up gigs for the whole summer of chaos so it's going really well hard work but good we had a brief chat right so help me out here tea in the park glastonbury it's on tea in the park's on the ospreys have been <laughs> saved my god i think there's a great story about the ospreys uh one of the male ospreys actually went into the nest and flung the eggs out i mean i know it sounds terrible but i think that was like so the animals are still in a natural habitat there's no effect going to be happening listen to you David Attenborough all of a I just, sudden I just read on the way up the trains that journey from Glasgow to Edinburgh when you're rehearsing <laughs> you've got something to do so you, you listen to your album and you read anything you, you find on I'm the on train I'm on Scott's podcast I'll need to sound cultural I'll <laughs> need to come on Nature Weekly was on the only thing left on the chairs it's the only thing I could read um, but, uh, apart from the Metro but that takes you a second so that was the um, sorry Metro that's not fair any, ab- any advertisements for button up in the metro are more than welcome. That's just a friend, a friendly plug for the metro. <laughs> they did actually like his ones. Is it 2010 or something? But I get that. God bless the metro. Right, so uh, you're rehearsing away. Button up are obviously still active. Tell us, well, tell us about that. That's been a year on tour with the, the album Beach Street. And we started in Liverpool at the Cavern Club. And we're finishing this Saturday in Liverpool at the Cavern Club at the IPO Festival, which is International Pop Overflow. Whew, I'm glad I got that right. Um, and they do it all around the world. I think the last one was in Chicago, and then they do Liverpool and they go to Berlin. So it's nice to be asked. Two gigs in the one night, quite rock and roll. You play in the cavern bar across the road, and then you take all your gear off the stage and cross the road into the cool cavern, Liverpool, famous Beatles, and go and play there at one o'clock in the morning till two. So that's that's a good way in between the Proclaimers rehearsals to sort of, rather than rest, I'd rather just go out and just totally drain myself into the last bit of energy I've got left. So. Amazing. Bunch of Scottish gigs as well. Perth Concert Hall. You're playing in the Motherwell Civic Centre. I'm looking at the dates here. It's absolutely That's amazing. December, super, super busy. Um, but we're brought you on because you and I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago when you heard I had Kenny Jones on oh, from the Small Faces. You, you know your stuff when it comes to the faces and the Small Faces. Tell us a bit about, you said you had some fun facts about the Small Faces. Well, there's, there's not much fun facts. The fun facts are the music, the Small Faces, and the fun I think they all had. Now, I'm just thinking back about Kenny Jones is the only small face left. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, and it, it must be, I'm not going to get sad on the podcast, but it must be sad when you look back because he's the only one left and he started the Steve Marriott Foundation, uh, the Charity Foundation, I think, after Steve Marriott died in the early 90s. And um, and he's now sitting as only small face left. So, I mean, the fact you've got him on the show, I think, is a, is a compliment to yourself because he must be inundated for interviews and press things. But small faces, when I was growing up, I remember listening to... Um, we were all kind of mods, young mods and stuff like that. So we are brought up in jam and all that stuff and two-tone and everything. But obviously, when Paul Weller and the guys said, who's your influence? They said, small faces and who and all that. So um, when you started listening to small faces, the first time I heard, like, what are you going to do about it? Sha-la-la-la-lee. And then I think when I heard Tin Soldier, I thought, I want to play a guitar. That's a brilliant, one of the best songs I've ever heard, Tin Soldiers. And the fact that Kenny Jones, when we were growing up, was in The Who, so he was mm-hmm, a kind of yeah. cover, he ticked all the boxes for us, you know Aye. what I mean? So, and obviously to cover Keith Moon's gig after um, he passed away tragically in, uh, and Live Aid. Kenny Jones was in The Who and Live Aid, you know? Mm-hmm. So 10 years in The Who, and before that, The Faces with Rod Stewart and The Small Faces. Not a bad career, I think. I, I would take that. Amazing, absolutely that. amazing. And a cracking drummer as well. No, I mean, I, <laughs> you don't get to play with those guys unless no. they're the, the best of the best. I love his drumming, his drumming's it's solid, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. really good drumming. It's proper. It's proper 
classic British drumming, R&B, brought up in the blues, learned how to become rock and through all the ages and just, I mean, stay with me. God's oh, shooting the faces. Isn't that one of the best songs I've ever written? I mean, I've ever played, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And Tin Soldier as well. And I think what was the Who song that always sticks out the single was it, um, You Better, You Better, You Bet. That's, 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 he played on that, of course he did, right? Story. That's the albums he was on. I think it was in two Who albums. <laughs> Quite a, an amazing career, and I'm really glad you mentioned the Who because obviously we spoke to Kenny earlier and um, he's got some great Keith Moon stories and I really want to get him on for a part two and I think that'll happen because he was only he was just getting going. Some uh, story, uh, trilogies, that could be that could be <laughs> six series, man. That's an epic that's an epic story. I think so. I you you guys are gonna love it, honestly. The stories about Keith Moon, the stories about the faces, the small faces, just incredible. Uh, I don't want to give too much away and spoil it, so let's get right down to it with Kenny Jones. Okay, I am back on the Talk Music Podcast with Kenny Jones. How are you, Kenny? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Good. Um, Now, so much to talk about. An amazing career uh, in music. Uh, But we want to go right back to the start. Uh, The Small Faces. I'm interested to know uh, your first impressions of Steve Marriott. Um, Do you remember meeting Steve and and generally what um, gives your first interaction with him? Well, I... When I first met Steve, right, I, I, it was actually in the music shop called the J60s where I bought my drum kit, and Ronnie Lane and I went up there because we, Ronnie, Ronnie Lane and I formed a band together called The Outcast, and, then, and Ronnie was playing lead guitar then, and he was still learning how to play it. Like I was learning how to play the drums, you know, and he's, um, he said, I don't want to play lead anymore. I want to play guitar. And um, I saw it at a bass, and I said, okay, well, let's go back to the shop, the one and only shop where everyone bought their stuff, a shop called the J60s in Manor Park in the East End. And then um, we went on Saturday morning, we went up there, and this guy came up to us and over helpful and said, um, yeah, how can I help him? I said, well, he wants to try a bass out. And, oh, try this one, try that one. And I, whilst they were looking at basses, I sat behind the drum kit, they had some kids set up and I started to play a little bit. Then kind of Ronnie joined in and then this guy did. He got a guitar, put a guitar on and that was that was Steve Merritt. He had a um, uh, a kind of a odd job, sort of Saturday morning job there, um, uh, just for some pocket money. And we invited him to our gig that evening. And all the way, all the way through, I kept thinking, I know this guy, I've seen him somewhere before. And then it came to me Right, that um, he was well, after we did the gig. You know, he'd been a, in a film with Peter Sellers. And I can't remember what the name of the film was called now. Um, it's where Peter Sellers played a vicar, and Steve was playing a very young Herbert in there. And also, Steve was the um, he, he was the very first uh, Oliver mm-hmm. in you know, which is fantastic. You know, so um, yeah, not it was fantastic. Um, Oh, sorry, the Artful Dodger in Oliver. And consequently, he turned us all into Artful Dodgers. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's what, that's that's my first impression of Steve. I, you know, we got along like house on fire. You know, we just, we just clicked up, me and Ronnie and Steve. You know, that was it. What age were you guys then? <clears throat> sorry? What age were you, were you guys then? Because I think you, were you in your teens at that point, the, the three of you? I, I was 14. I think Ronnie... He was probably 16, stroke 17. Uh, Steve was about six months older than me, something like that. Wow. 
Yeah, we were all very, very young. <coughs> right, so how long uh, How long was it before the band got signed, Kenny? How long was it you guys writing all those songs before uh, that took place? Ne- next to no time. I mean, you know, I'll give you an indication. I was, you know, I was, I was still 15 when we had a hit record. Jeez. So, you know, it's like I was just turning 16. I was still 15 when we had uh, released What You Gonna Do About It. So it was very quick, you know, within a year or so. Well, that's incredible. I, I, yeah. I honestly, I knew you guys were young, but I didn't realise you were you were that young, right? And yeah. there's a bit of a, an urban legend as to the the signing. Um, can you talk us a bit about the actually getting signed, um, the management and, and everything that goes well, along with that? Yeah, what happened was we 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 obviously we'd formed a, a band with, with no name really, and uh, we'd built up this um, uh, uh, following in in the. Um, the London Claver, Cavern, as it was called, uh, just off Leicester Square. And after six weeks, obviously, this folly, you know, we, a lot of people used to come to see us because they liked us. And, and obviously, it got around the music industry. And, and then Don Arden uh, sent his right hand man, a guy called Pat Meehan Sr. Uh, and he came down and waited after the show, said, Look, I'd like a word with everybody. You know, we're really interested in signing you. And, and we all said, No, we're not interested in. Uh, uh, being famous and all that nonsense and whatever, so being signed, you know, that's it. And next day we all went up to the office, <laughs> so we all thought about it. So, um, and we met Don Arden. We got along famously with Don Arden. He was like a big teddy bear. Um, and not knowing that one day he'd end up screwing us, whatever. So, but you know, he was, he was, he believed in us, and it was meant to be in a sense. So, um, and he was a. Uh, that's how we got signed, really. I mean, he said to us, "I can either I can give you a wage, or or a percentage." So we said, "We'll go outside and have a meeting." So we went outside and talked to each other. We went. We came back and we went. No, we want we want money and we want a percentage as well. So we want both. So that's that's what we did. <laughs> Artful dodgers, indeed. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, without Don, I mean, Don opened all the doors. Released, you know, the record, uh, and, and that's how we met Ian Samuel, who produced "What You Gonna Do About It." Um, and Don had a, a wealth of contacts, and and you know, he was a he believed in us, and that was that. See, but you know, in those days, um, your your lifespan in the music industry as a band w- would only be three to four years. That was that was a, the, the norm. Here we are. Here we are now. Over fifty years later, <laughs> right. So, um, I, I'd love to have uh, been around and run about circa nineteen sixty-five when you guys were touring with the Who. Now, yeah, great days. <laughs> right. So, I, I need to hear a bunch of stories about this because I've got to understand that so much went on. But first of all, who who was on the bills in the early day for that? It was you guys? It was the Who? Was was it, I've I've got in my mind that there was another act involved. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, there was, and I can't remember. To be honest, but I mean, we did. It's in the days of lots of package tours, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was Dave Berry. We toured with Dave Berry. We toured with the, the Hollies, all in one on the same bill. Uh, um, who else? Uh, Roy Orbison, right. all on the same bill. Yeah. And that guy who sang "Lightning Strikes." I can't remember. Uh, we had a real high voice. Anyway, um, yeah, that's great days. Anyway, Paul and Barry Ryan. Right. Right, so you yep. got you guys on the road with the Who then? Uh, yeah, you, you tour in the UK. Th- you're touring America by that point as well, is that right? 
We know we we didn't go to America. That's the only mistake we made in America. Uh, not going to America, but that's I think partly because um, uh, Mac had a had a drug bust in those days. You, you just couldn't get into America, so mm-hmm. that was it. And also the fact that Don Ard was very protective and he didn't want to lose control of us. Right. Okay. Okay. I am. I am to think if if we'd have gone to America, would have taken it by storm, and we, you know, we might have ended up being staying together longer. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't see that not happening uh, in a way. Looking, looking back, and I mean, the band just had everything really. Um, yeah. So, once again, so many, everybody's got a story about Keith Moon. I would imagine that you've got a few as well. I don't know if you would. Uh... Far too many to tell. Yeah, I got loads of them, <laughs> loads can... of them. Because I mean, we, you know, we, I mean, I'll, I'll give you one. Since it, this happened in Scotland, right? So it's very apt to talk about this one. Uh, we were going from. I can't remember, we were going down Edinburgh. Oh, Keith Moon, we were staying at the hotel, and then Keith Moon said to me, why don't you come with me, Kenny, we'll get in my car, and he had a white Rolls Royce. And Wiggy, uh, the roadie at the time, was, was uh, he had he lost all his hair, that's why I call him Wiggy. His bald was, it was like, it looked like uh, he had no hair on his head at all. And uh, so he was driving, and then Mooney was in the, in the passenger seat, and Mooney had um, a speaker behind the Rolls grill, and a mic, an amp and a mic connected to it, you know. So, and he had these two um, plastic blow-up blow legs. <laughs> so he opened the window and started wiggling them out, like, and then shouting out, rape, rape, you know. And, uh, of course, this bus driver uh, stopped his bus and ran back to help this damsel in distress <laughs> and we caused havoc. And then so we, we, that happened, we went right through the high street, and then as we were coming out of Edinburgh, we got um, stopped by, you know, half a dozen police cars, and 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 that was that was Mooney. That's a typical way we go up to. And then they and they said, we're, we're, you know, we heard you, um, you, you've you, you, you've got a young lady and and uh, you you know rape and all this." And, and he said, uh, "Yeah, well, we're only having a laugh." And he said, "Well, you know, we'll have to go back to your hotel and check that one out." So so I went back to the hotel and. Thinking that there was a woman there as well. No, but anyway, we, that was it. <laughs> and that was. You never know what trouble you're getting. Another time, when the Who and, and the Small Faces were toured Australia, and we were we were in Melbourne this time, and we were both on the on the on the same floor, about ten or eleven floors up, something like that. And Mooney called me up and said, um, "Oh, what?" Fancy a drink? I said, yeah, okay. So uh, he said, come to my room. So I went to his room and then knocked on the door, went in, and Mooney had all these snare drums lined up in there that had just been sent over to him, like about 10 snare drums or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what do you need all them for? What are you going to do with them? And he went, I'll show you what we do with them. <laughs> so he picked one up and threw it out the window, and the window was still still closed. <laughs> so straight through the glass, straight through... And we looked at, uh, through the window, and there it was. It, it landed straight in Melbourne High Street, and there it was rolling and bouncing and breaking up. Oh, and uh, that's it, we legged it down to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Gone. It wasn't us. <laughs> that's the kind of thing he did. That's the sort of thing. You never know what trouble you're going to get yourself into. <laughs> Another day, Just a day in the life of Keith Moon. Yeah, and then another time, which I think was in Scotland, ran on the same tour, I heard, I went to bed after we did this gig and had a few drinks afterwards, and then 
I thought I'd go to bed. And then I just go into my room and I had my suitcase open right opposite the door. And I heard all this scuffling outside my door. And I thought, what's that? So I got out of bed and I, I was creeping up to the door thinking, what's all that about? And as I got halfway to the door, a, a jet of water hit me quite hard in the, in the bed, in my stomach. And knocked me back in, and I fell straight back into my suitcase with water pouring all over me. And it was Mooney taking the fire hose down in the hallway <laughs> and stuck it under the door. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's another time. I mean, there's lots of them, but he, I loved him to bits. He was he was fantastic. He was a you know just an unbelievable guy. Great drummer as well. Oh, bro! The, the only the only drummer for the Who on my head, even though I did um, uh, my stint with the Who like ten years with the Who. I call that I've served my tour of duty. That was that one. But to this day, you know, no one could replace him and, and his style that he had. He was wonderful. Yeah, he's, he's a, a really, really unique player, as you said. So we're jumping yeah. back and forth a bit, but as we're on that, how did the... Uh, we'll, we'll get to the faces in a little bit, but um, as far as the Who gig is concerned, how, how did that come about then? did Because you were obviously close to the guys having toured with them so much. Well, what, what happened was, I mean, I'd, uh, I, I was forming a band with... Um, after the faces had split up, and then I was—I did some sessions for a couple of years. Really enjoying myself, not being on the road. And then Glenn John said to me, "I've got a few American musicians; they're really good, and I think we should, uh, you know, put a band together. You know, which is transatlantic band, like a couple of English guys and a couple of American guys, and a guy called Bill Lamb was an American guy, great songwriter, great singer. And we kind of formed this band, a bit like a an English and American Eagles, really." Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were just about to sign to Atlantic Records for, in those days, quite a lot of money, uh, which is about one and a half million quid uh, dollars. And and Mooney had died, and and I I, I just well I no I had, no jumping the gun sorry. I got back that evening from America, and it was the Buddy Holly. Uh, Paul McCartney had just put his film together about, about the Buddy Holly film, and so I went straight to that, and they had the party, the after party. Uh, before another way around, so I thought, this is I thought this is nuts, you know. So we, before we went to the premiere of the film, we had the party first. So and then when I, I was on the same table with Mooney, there was me, um, Keith Boone, uh, Sir David Frost before he was a sir, uh, and you know Paul and Linda and uh, Paul's brother, uh, who was in the scaffold, and I was telling Mooney. You know, I said, "How are you?" And he said, oh, "I'm, I'm doing all right." I said, "He said, I've, I've just got um, myself off of um, uh, drinks and drugs and stuff like that." He said, "I'm not drinking anymore, and I take these pills to actually stop me um, drinking. If I take one, it makes me violently sick." And he said, "What about you?" I said, "Well, I've just got back from America, and I'm, you know, put this band together." I told him all about that, and we were having a bit of a good old chinwag, you know. And then, you know, around about sort of. I don't know, 10 o'clock, we went all, just all marched around on mass to Leicester Square and and went to see the, the, premiere, the, the premiere of the Buddy Holly film. And then after that was finished, it was about one in the morning or something, we said goodbye to me, I said goodbye to Mooney, and that was it. I went home and I lived in Hampstead at the time. And then uh, we, I, I turned the TV on as you do when you wake up in the morning and then the news came on and it said, uh, Keith Moon was found dead this morning of a drug overdose, and I thought, no, this is nuts. What's he up to now? He's pulled another prank. It can't be true. And sure enough, he, that's what happened. Was he after that 
Premier, he'd gone home, taken one of his pills, nighttime pills, and then went to bed and woke up a couple of hours later, thought it was morning, and he cooked some breakfast and took another pill. Well, that was only two hours later, and you're not supposed to take these pills that close together. And that, what happened was it was enough to slow his heart down, and that's how he died. Mm. Sad. So indirectly, he did die of a drug overdose, but not intentionally. That's interesting. Yeah, and then about three months later, I, you know, uh, I said my goodbyes. Said, you know, he's got cremated and stuff like that. But I, I took my my reef and my note, my uh, my little short sympathy letter, um, and left it on the on the on the side there. And then I went, and then it was about three months later, okay. I got a call from Bill Kirbishley, the Who's manager, and he said, "Look, um, the, the Who have had a meeting." and they want you to join the band, and they won't consider anybody else. I went, wow. Uh, I said, well, I'm afraid, Bill, I, I can't really do it because uh, I've got a... I just formed this band, like I said, with Glenn Johns, and, you know, and if you theory is the silence on the thing. No. <laughs> you couldn't believe I said no. And I said, well, not because I didn't want it, because I was already doing something, you know. He said, well, look, Pete's coming into the office this evening in Wardour Street, and uh, why don't you come in... You know, so I said, okay, so I went in there about sort of six o'clock, met with Pete. I said, yeah, I was happy to see Pete, you know. And Pete and I and Bill talked for about two hours about the good old days and everything, a bit like we're talking about, what happened, you know, the, the fun we had. And then uh, Pete turned around and said, oh, you've got to join us. You're one of us. You're a mod, you know, and all that. And he said, you know, and I sort of uh, was, was convinced to do it. So I, I, I said, yeah, I, how can I not? You know, yeah, of course. And so I, I said yes. That's how I, that's how it came about. Right. And what was it like working with the, with the guys? Then obviously, like you said, you were friends with them. Did you just fight well, right in? I'd already done. To, Emerson and I used to do a lot of sessions in between the bands. And, you know, even while we were in, I was in the small faces of faces or whatever. And I got so I loved doing working with other people. See, so I did lots of sessions, and so did Emerson. So. We'd worked together many times. We'd also toured Australia by that time and got to know each other and whatever. And I used to do all the uh, sound checks in Australia every gig we played at because one night we'd top the bill and the next night the Who would top the bill. And then, but I, I was Mooney never turned up the sound checks and I did my sound check for my drums and then Pete said, "Would you could you do Mooney's drums as well?" So I used to do Mooney's as well. So the sound check there, and we just got together and. and I knew each other. I mean, I used to go to Pete's house, and and we he asked me to play on some of his demos quite often. And that's what I did. So it's quite it's like being in one band, to be honest. John Ben. Yeah. So I had a, you know, it's, it's pretty pretty friendly. And when I joined the band, it was you know it's like home from home to a degree. The only hardest bit in it was learning the the Who repertoire of songs, you know, and some of them are quite complex. You know, I've been used to. Uh, small faces stuff, and all of a sudden I've got the Who and everything else like that to learn. Uh, but you know, nevertheless, that's what happened. Right, and it was a good experience playing with him. I mean, Townsend's such a genius, isn't he? Oh yeah, was, as you get to know Pete, he's a he's a special guy, very creative and a very nice guy. You know, he's got that sort of stern look, but he's got a wonderful smile, wonderful personality, and he and he cares he cares about people. Yeah, and I think you jumped on stage with him again. What was it last year, Kenny? Um, yeah. Uh, what That's was, right. That was a, was that a charity event that you put on? 
Yeah, well, I did I did a, a, an event at my polo club and uh, for uh, prostate cancer, uh, and because I, I had prostate cancer, and and I'd already said yes to this day that I was going to do two years prior, and said I'd do it, and not knowing that at that time I was going to get prostate cancer. So it's kind of weird. I was I ended up with it. It's kind of weird, and so I yeah, we asked Pete and Roger if they would uh, like to take part in the evening and they said yes straight away so I it's the first time I'd played with them for I don't know 25 30 years something like that wow and it was it was great we had a great time it was just like going back in time <laughs> amazing yeah so um we did get a chance to talk about uh Rod Stewart and obviously Ronnie Wood um same kind of thing were you friends with the guys before uh they ended up in effect joining the small faces and becoming that band did you guys know each other prior to that no not 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 second half of the faces, no. The, uh, what happened was um, Steve had left the band. The three of us stayed together, and we used to get together once a week and just have a play, because we were a bit lost in those days, you know. And the Stones had a, a rehearsal studio in Bermondsey Street, just over Tower Bridge in London, uh, and a soundproof room down the bottom. So they said we could use it whenever we want. So we went over there, me, Ronnie, and um, Mac, and started jamming playing and whatever. And then one week, um, Ronnie Lane brought down his new neighbour. And that was Ronnie Wood, who was playing bass with the Jeff Beck band at that time. And uh, so we got to know Ronnie Wood, and he was play- He didn't want to play bass, and he wanted to play guitar. It's been the opposite way to what I said about Ronnie Lane, you know. So, And it was great, because he, you know, he was learning to play guitar and God knows what. And then Another week, he'd bring down his best mate, which was Rod Stewart. Rod used to sit on the amps watching us for a couple of weeks, a few weeks, and I kept thinking. Then we started to get serious about the vocals and stuff. And I, and I, I never forget, I've got the, the, the best seat in the house, as they say, I can, so I can judge everything and every, which way it's going. And of course, after a big, powerful voice like Steve Marriott, mm-hmm. even though Ronnie Lane had a wonderful voice, and you know there was nothing as powerful there. And then... You know, because Max sang, and he would, but he was singing as well. I was still missing that big, powerful song, uh, voice. And that, I kept looking over and looking at Rod, uh, you know, for a few weeks prior, sitting on the amps, waiting for us to have a break so we could go up to the pub called the Bermondsey Arms and have a drink and a bit of a laugh. And I said to Rod, when we went up to the pub that day, do you fancy joining the band? And he said, oh, you think, you think everyone will let me? think that'd be good? I said, yeah, great, wonderful. So that evening we went back to Alvin Lee, the guitarist who was having a party in his muse house in London. And I said to everybody there, I've asked what to join the band. Uh, and they said, no, we don't want another prima donna. We don't want another, we don't want another Steve Mary who's going to walk out on us. And I, and I, and I had to fight all night and uh, I, I, I won. Oh, and that's, really? how, that's, how, that's how Rod joined the band. That's amazing. So essentially you get Rod Stewart in the band then, and you think you was your yeah. big thing then for we, that. Then we, then, we, then we became the faces and that was it, because there was nothing small about us yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anymore. Because Rod, Rod Emily were a bit taller than us. <laughs> so what are you up to these days? Have you got anything on the go musically? Uh, yeah, I've. Uh, the faces are going to do something possibly this year. Amazing. And uh, September-ish, and I can't say too much about it yet. And we are. We've all agreed. We've all met. Woody and I flew over to LA for Rod's seventieth birthday, and we all agreed. And we actually played it. Me, Rod, me and Woody and uh, Rod 
and we did stuff, same with me, Sweet Little Rock and Roll and stuff like that, and it was great. So we decided to um, to, to tour next year, doing something. So, but uh, you know, like all these things, you know, things change, don't they? But um, that's that's our intention. Well, we definitely look forward to that. There's a certain bass player that I would love to see with you guys on the stage again, and I would, I would, it would be great if it happened. I think because um, I think Glenn Matlock did it at one point, didn't he? he did. uh, what's that? Uh, he played the bass for you guys for a little bit, didn't he? Oh, Glenn, uh. Glenn Matlock. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, he he, he played. Uh, yeah, that's right. Quite. That was when we had Mick Hucknall singing, and because Rod was too busy doing something, he couldn't get over or whatever. So and that was a bit fun to do. So. Uh, but Glenn was, uh, you know, great to work with. You know, quite strange having a sex pistol in the band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. All right, Kenny, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, I mean, an incredible career, and it's been a joy just doing my research the last couple of days and finding all this stuff out, man. Massive fan of the small faces, the faces and the who, every band that you've been in, and uh, we look forward to seeing the faces potentially back in the road again sometime soon. Yeah, OK, well, well put. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll see you in, in Scotland Absolutely amazing Kenny Jones What an honour to speak to The 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 last small face In a really positive way um, The man who was obviously in the faces as well In the who Incredible stories And I will look to get Kenny back Because no doubt you guys will be demanding it After that great interview I'm back with Gary John Kane Of course the man who's in the charts right now I know <laughs> He's legitimately in the charts <laughs> Who would have thought Not the bingo charts It's the real charts The real, the real top 100 I couldn't believe it So, so the album came in at 26 The Proclaimers new album Let's hear it for the dogs plug And um, it's quite weird And you look at it And you see your nieces and nephews are like In their early 20s or 18s And that, and they're like God see Ollie Mars is above you And Ed Sheeran's below you But Obviously, we're a new entry at 26. They've been in the charts for about two years, probably. But it still looks, it still looks good. It's tiny. It's a sad thing you freeze frame and keep in your file. So one day, if anybody's ever interested, you can show them I was in the charts in 2015. You know, but ah, it's, it's it's nice to be in there. But it's it's amazing. Come ah, on, it's still, it's still fighting. I'm still punching them. I'm not punching above my weight, but still punching in the ring. You know, we should. So that's always an honour for me. And. I think we recorded an album down Rockfield, which is famous for all the sort of Stone Roses and Oasis, and in fact, more famous probably for Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody and all yeah. that. That's, that's the studio. Um, but we get down there, it's residential, it was great. The producer guy, David Engers, as I mentioned before, is quite a legend, you know, and um, it's just a great time. I know I, I, people say all oh, these tragic albums take forever. We did it in two weeks, literally did it in two weeks. Mm-hmm. All band, first week, all vocal, second week, done and dusted, mixed in two weeks, and I think the manager had it back by January, so. I think that's the old school man. way of making the record, but I also think it's the only way he could do it that he does financially, so it's 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 all but uh, It's old school, small faces, which ties in with exactly I'm what I'm sure we're the small for. faces probably got about eight hours to do the first album. I mean that's I, also I, true. I'd done two gigs the same day. That was <laughs> when you look at some of the, the tour schedules, I love looking at that like books about the, the touring and the like Ian McLaglan's books brought he's, he's sort of goes through all the gigs and all the times when he joined and it was sometimes it was three gigs a day and at night you get in record. Mm-hmm. And there was a great story about the small faces I was reading recently that I didn't realise they got back together in 1977. Mm-hmm. And, Ronnie, <laughs> and they were rehearsing and, and Ronnie Lane was there, the full band were there. And Ronnie Lane said, he nip, I'm nipping out to get cigarettes. And he never came back. So to get another bass player, a bass player in. And then they did the tour. And it wasn't the best tour. I think it was, it was right at the height of punk. And I remember Steve Marriott had dungarees and a moustache. It it and they were playing the song, but then Steve Marriott lost his voice the fourth gig. 
And it was just, it was, it was, a, it was a disaster, I think, um, a two-week disaster, because all these punks were coming to get thinking small faces of sort of, you know, mm. the youth rebellion, but the guys were hit, hitting their early 30s at that time, and they were just mm. kind of like, and Kenny Jones had just left the faces, I believe, and that's how the small faces get back together, just for a brief month to tour, and then obviously joined the Who, so... Mm-hmm. I think he he won the watch in that one. I think you know what I mean. I'm sure Steve Marriott did some brilliant stuff after that, and so did E. McLagan did all the session stuff with Rod Stewart and everything. But I think Kenny Jones sort of uh, as, as a good guy, a good a great drummer, he should get that. You know, oh, it's it's brilliant. I mean, the, the small faces, just it's just legendary. Uh, the three acts that he was in, and a great interview, of course, and, and amazing stories as we said earlier. Uh, Gary John Kane, the trilogy, the trilogy. Can you believe it? Cause was that the first time we got the guy? Was that 1974, man? Was that after the Nazareth tour, wasn't it? <laughs> after, <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, Scott got to Nazareth in the 73, but we left. We're too young, really. Three, I was three, and he wasn't born. But it was, um, aye. Exhilarating. It's good to be here in this big, beautiful studio. I know, Great. everybody thinks that probably with the nature of the people, well, the, the, the guests that I get on, that, you know, oh, no, when you get invited down. I, I wish you could see it from the camera. I wish you could see the It's two the, the blokes sitting the on a couch. Beautiful and the, with a picture of the Who in the background, actually right behind you. I've got the Who, you've got the Beatles behind Beatles, you. Yeah, we're, we're surrounded by, by rock royalty. It's amazing. Um, but I tell you what. Samsung tellies, it's amazing. It's, it's phenomenal. Really but the, the Who and the Beatles, here's the difference between them and you. They're not in the charts. Well, do you know what? Not this week. <laughs> <laughs> Gary John Cade, big thanks to you. Thanks to the brothers and the Proclaimers. Thanks, Scott. And um, go and see them this year, proclaimers.co.uk. Go and catch Button Up and all their respective social media sites and the Button Up website, which is... ButtonUpRecords.com And sh- be sure to log on to iTunes and click on Scott Cowie and Twitter. subscribe to my podcast make sure that's your first port of call before the proclaimers Gary John and of course anything related to Kerry Jones or I'll not get back on <laughs> and I will see you guys next week <laughs>